You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Trust me. 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 I'm going to let you take a break from beautiful presentations. I know Ilya will then go back. This is for Ilya's presentation. It's not. It's no, no. no I, I like it. I like it. Um, I'm really just setting your your presentation up. So, um, just to tell you very briefly about myself, um, I'm not actually an academic, and I'm always a little bit uh, frightened when I'm surrounded by real ones. But I do work at the moment in a university. Uh, but my background's actually in in writing and making TV, uh, largely about Russia uh, and a little bit about propaganda. And um, at the LSC, they've been kind enough to, to give me space to create a little think tank where I analyze disinformation campaigns, often with a large Russian uh, ingredient in them, but increasingly with a very large American ingredient in them. Um, and then we work with media to experiment uh, different methods to kind of smooth some of the pathologies that we see in, uh, in media and public opinion these days. So... Uh, we can talk about that later if they have any kind of detailed questions about that. But um, I'm going to just talk very, um, uh, just for 15 minutes, I think, about uh, this concept of information war, uh, which um, I had to get my, wrap my head around as, as, as a journalist uh, and took quite a lot, took quite a lot of time. Um, I remember as early as sort of 2014, suddenly this word information war and Russia started appearing a lot. Uh, in media, I even asked some friends at MIT at the Media Lab to see whether there was a spike in kind of people talking about information war and articles about information war. And there was a, a very big one in the US in 2017, unsurprisingly. I suppose that's due to articles about the US election. But already you can see sort of a lot, a lot more references to it from 2014. And I was trying to understand just as, as kind of a journalist what on earth information war actually is. Because I always thought about propaganda as, I don't know, you have one set of people giving an opinion over here, and you have another set of people giving an opinion over there, and they have an argument with each other, and then you know, one side wins. And I started reading into kind of the Russian approach to information war, and, and it, it was quite eye-opening. Um, you know, I started looking at sort of old kind of military theory from the 90s and 2000s, and there's a real kind of push within uh, Russian military thinking to embrace information warfare as an aspect of the future of war. Um, uh, and it thinks about information in a very kind of instrumentalized way. So information isn't a sort of a set of arguments or ideals. It's, it's really a, uh, just a way of sort of messing with the enemy to divide, to delay, to slow them down, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I even found uh, a wonderful book uh, called, it's like an encyclopedia that gets written, given to Russian bureaucrats and, and, uh, and military students. Information Psychological War Operations, a short encyclopedia and reference guide. It's like a, a handbook for junior information warriors. It's, it's designed for students, political technologists, state security services, and civil servants. And it talks about information like an invisible radiation. The population doesn't even feel it is being acted upon. So the state doesn't switch on its self-defense mechanisms. Um, Tim Thomas is someone from the American military side who's looked at sort of the development of, of Russian information war theory. And, and, you know, essentially it's got two or three main ingredients to it. One of them is that uh, uh, the future of war will go more and more away from military towards information operations. That blurs the lines between peace and war, so you can start engaging with the enemy uh, without ever declaring war. Um, 
and it's kind of a permanent state. Yeah, it never really ends. So, so this is without doubt sort of a serious bit of Russian kind of military thinking. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, I, as 2016 kind of wore on and, and there were all these conversations about information, well, I, in the US suddenly, I sort of find myself at think tanks in DC where real military experts, I mean, not journalists like myself, but real military experts would have these incredible, incredibly intense fights about how to call the new Russian theory of war. Was it full spectrum warfare? Was it uh, ambiv uh, ambiguous warfare? Was it hybrid warfare? A lot of people like hybrid warfare, which I think basically just is a nice way of saying Russian without ever saying Russia. Uh, and they'd have these incredibly intense fights, full spectrum warfare, and then on and on and on. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is you know, these people A are experts and, and I don't really have a right to kind of involve myself in these conversations. But, you know, as I read further into the way kind of information war is thought about in Russia, I realized that actually it's not just about a military theory, which military experts and sort of state, state security people have to think about a lot. It's almost like some sort of quasi, I use the word ideology very, very loosely here, a worldview, shall we say. It's a way of explaining away the world. So in the late 2000s, you already have a guy that uh, Ilya has written about beautifully in his book called Igor Panarin, a former KGB guy, stroke academic, who's writing books about really how the whole of modern history should be seen as information warfare. The Soviet Union fell, not because it had terrible uh, you know, economic, social problems, governance issues, but because of an information operation, I think he calls it Operation Perestroika, a fifth column of reformers put into the Kremlin by the West, as it fed up it's kind of the dissidents in the country and attacked with the BBC and Radio Free Europe to bring down the Soviet Union. Now at first, these kind of, you know, this information war as a worldview, kind of it was contained to kind of freaks like Polarin. Um, I think I used the word freak there academically. And, um, and then slowly, as the protests that we heard about in Russia happened in 11, 12, you see mainstream government officials start taking this up, saying, no, 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 the protests aren't because of you know, genuine social discontent, it's an information operation by the West. Um, then you have the heads of RT and Rasiya Sivodnya, who are similarly named, but actually different organizations, uh, who do propaganda, starting to talk about the world in terms of information warfare, themselves quite proudly as information warriors. It enters sort of the Russian sort of security doctrine, and it becomes kind of a way of explaining the whole world. I mean, one of the guys that I um, talk about in my new book, the upcoming one coming out in September, called This Is Not Propaganda, this is not a plug, um, is Igor Ashmanov. So Igor Ashmanov, now he's not a crusty spook. This is one of the founders of the Russian internet, certainly the way he describes himself. One of the creators, I think, of Russia's first, one of Russia's early search engines. This is a tech guy. This is not a, you know, you know, a sort of dribbling, crazy person. This is somebody with a beautiful office in central Moscow with fruit everywhere. I mean, he looked completely, you know, he looked completely normal in any tech gathering, fluent English-ish, um, an international guy. Um, and I came to his office in Moscow, and uh, I'll just read a couple of quotes because I can't, I can't remember them by heart, but it, it sort of captures the spirit of this. The fall of the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, Iraq, we've lived through many information wars, he told me. Um, he's also told Russian lawmakers that Google, Facebook, and Twitter are ideological weapons aimed at Russia, and that profit <coughs> is only a secondary necessity for them. 
Because American secret service operations, says Ashmanov, such as Google, need to be economically self-sufficient. That's one of the ways the American government works. Um, now, his big idea is information sovereignty. Uh, and there was kind of like this lovely moment in his office when I asked him, so what do you do? How do you make your money? He's like, oh, yeah, I create internet filters. And I'm like, but hold on, so you're pushing for information sovereignty and a Russian firewall, and you make filters? And he kind of read my thoughts that actually he's doing this out of very cynical profit-making motives. And he quickly told me, no, 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 I don't want to do business with the government. They're a, they're a terrible client. Um, but there was one, one lovely quote that, he, that, that I had from him. And this is from him. If your ideology is imported, as with liberalism, then you're always playing to foreign rules, which are always being changed by someone else. You can always be called guilty, breaking the rules of democracy. Ideology should be created inside a country, like operational systems, rockets, insulin, and grain, supported and defended by information sovereignty. So his big idea was, Russia needs an ideology in order to have an excuse to start censoring foreign news and foreign websites. So it's a very interesting kind of worldview. It's very topsy-turvy. It's like information precedes essence. It's sort of the opposite of the Cold War, where you had general, genuine ideological competition that led to different types of confrontation. Here you have the opposite. You find you know, an information interest, and then you create an ideology on top of it in order to, and to make sense of it. So it's a very topsy-turvy world, and it's, I suppose, the essence of the idea of information war as a kind of worldview, is there are no values in the world. You know? There's no real big arguments to have. Everything is just instrumentalized. Yeah? You only create ideology in the sense that it has some sort of military effect. It's not a place where you can win any arguments. It's not a place where you can uh, uh, really aspire to anything. And so I started getting a little bit worried when I saw that in the West, we were all kind of repeating this information war framing over and over and over. And I think, look, information doesn't work like weapons. Information doesn't work like bullets, you know? Information works largely through agenda setting and framing. That's kind of like the two basic tools we have as thinking about it. And when we start describing the world through information war framings, I think several risks start to appear. And I think we're already seeing some of them. Um, well, firstly, it's just, very depressing, you know? If you stop thinking about what your opponent is saying in terms of their arguments and their values and so on, you just think of it in terms of information warfare, you're kind of, it's a very, very cynical way of, of looking at the world. Also, it's very, very polarizing, yeah? You're, you're not thinking about sort of your opponent anymore, uh, someone you can engage with in a deliberative debate. You're simply thinking of them as smearing you or attacking you. And that's not a very sort of healthy thing for democracies, ways for democracies to think about these issues. And there might be a sort of a slight geopolitical danger as well, because I suppose what is the end game? If we all start thinking about the world in terms of information war, then the only solution, I suppose, is information peace, and that would be some sort of information sovereignty. I mean, if I were the Russians, what I would do is create these information attacks and then sue for peace and say, well, you know, let's all stop doing this and let's have censorship again of some sort. So you create the framework where censorship might become normalized. So I just want to very quickly go through some of the responses that I've seen to actually dealing with this challenge. Because it's, kind of, it's kind of a paradox. You can't ignore what the Russians are doing. You can't ignore their information influence operations. You can't just like Jared Kushner said the other day, oh, it's a couple of Facebook ads. There's deeper troubles than that. In 2008 in Estonia, we kind of saw 
how a mixture of cyber attacks, incited riots, and, uh, and propaganda basically shut down Estonia for several days. Do you all know the story, I assume, if you study the region? Okay. So, the, the, you know, Russian information operations are not to be taken lightly. On the other hand, if we start framing the whole debate in exactly the way they want, we've lost as well. So I'm going to give two or three examples of how I've seen different people deal with it. So one way to deal with this is not to answer in the information space at all. I mean, it could be a very big mistake to think that the way to answer information operations is through other types of information operation. So in one very large country in the middle of Europe, is this Chatham House or can I, is it recorded? Yeah. It's recorded, okay, a very large country in the middle of Europe <laughs> ends with land, yeah? So basically, in, before the last elections, 2017, which we did some research on, somebody, most probably the Russians, had kind of hacked the Bundestag and had laid out a bunch of websites to start leaking the material, a lot like the DNC leaks. And this was told to me completely off the record, so I, I, I don't know, I'm probably like breaking some trust here, but it never happened. The Russians never went through with it. And I asked sort of the, the German Kanzleramt, uh, why, why, what, what happened? Why, why did they not do it? It's like, well, we had a quiet word with them. We kind of said that there would be a cost. He didn't tell me what the cost would be. I assume the cost wasn't informational. I assume the cost would have been economic. We won't open that factory in the Mercedes factory in Bryansk or something. Overall, I expect that the most potent responses to Russian information influence operations won't be in the information space. Yeah? Democracies are always kind of rubbish in that space for many reasons, because of the need to protect freedom of speech, because of less of a habit of using state mechanisms for disinformation in the West anyway. Um, so it's about finding the vulnerabilities that the Kremlin does have and targeting those. And, and, they, and they have many, sort of Putin's Russia is a classic dilemma situation. Uh, they need sort of the narrative of a, of a confrontation with the West in order to create a bit of you know, national solidity around the leader. At the same time, they're economically and in so many other ways completely dependent on the West. Um, we have brought in some sanctions against Russia, but they've been very, very unthought through. And certainly what we haven't thought through in any detail is what would be the proportionate response in terms of sanctions to information operations. But that could be one way to go. Another way, which is a much more kind of information-based way, uh, and which I've seen kind of most effectively actually used on the ground uh, in Ukraine, where these questions are existential. They're not just little games like they are in a lot of Europe and partly here, that these are existential issues. So um, I think Olga even mentioned there was a horrific fire in Odessa during kind of the high point of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's a fire that where, due to a very complex set of messy events, um, 40 or so pro-Russians died, uh, pro-Russian demonstrators died, uh, and immediately there was this kind of massive information effort on the part of the Kremlin to incite uh, more civil strife in Ukraine. Um, the message seemed to be, it was a very messy situation, but the message seemed to be that, you know, Putin, our city is in a mess, come and rescue us, come and occupy us and bring peace. That seems to be the overall framing. So a very, very dangerous situation. Since then, we've had a lot of kind of like audio leaks of, of sort of essentially gangsters in Odessa getting instructions from their Russian caretakers to incite violence there. And so I talked to sort of the head of the local information department, a woman called Zoya Kazanji, who was sort of running it at the time, and asked, what was your information strategy during, during this period? And largely it was to move away from any talk of information war, 
And what they actually did was they kind of reframed the whole, the whole debate. Because basically what the Russian argument was that uh, you know, Putin will come in and bring peace. Uh, and so Zoya and her team put posters everywhere, the way she explained it to me, of what was happening in the Donbass, so war. And the idea was that if Putin comes, you won't get peace, you'll get war. So she moved away as far as possible from any kind of uh, conversations about information confrontation, ethnic confrontation between Russians and Ukrainians uh, in the city and tried to completely change the debate, which, you know, is a perfectly sensible PR sort of approach to an information problem. And then the last response that I want to mention is a regulatory response, which I think is probably the one that we're going to have to start to move to. And that reframes the question of information war away from a Russia problem to being a problem of how we clean up the internet generally and how we start to introduce regulation into it. Um, I know that's a very fraught question in America due to sort of First Amendment issues. Uh, in Europe, some countries have kind of charged ahead with this and have done so in a very, uh, very short-termist way, essentially trying to take down all kinds of uh, uh, what they think is illegal or harmful content from online. Uh, that's what the Germans have done. Uh, it's probably an unworkable solution. If we think about you know, trying to regulate every piece of content on the internet, that's going to be very, very hard. There's a new approach with the British are putting forward. Uh, I'm very much keeping in mind you know, that Russia is one of, one of the reasons they started thinking about this, is, uh, is trying to package this package the problem in terms of harms. Yeah? What is the harms of certain types of campaigns or activity on the internet? And then having a relationship with the platforms where they have to put systems in place which mitigate those harms. So something that we could, that gets you a little bit away from the question of harmful content to harmful types of behavior. So for example, are we okay as a society with coordinate, you know, what the sort of stuff that Josh was talking about, coordinated inauthentic behavior on the internet? Should we even have that? Uh, if the algorithms are being played by Russian bots, what kind of relationship can we have with the company, with the tech companies, so that we have a little bit of input into the way those algorithms are created and protected? So that's kind of, I think, the way the debate is going to go, uh, which is also fraught with difficulties. But it does give you something because it gets, gets you away from uh, kind of like a, a nonstop over-focus sometimes on Russia and into a debate where we can start talking about transparency, where we can start talking about what is the difference between legitimate influence and uh, illegitimate manipulation online. I'm looking above you because I was given 20 minutes. I've hit 20 minutes. I'm just going to stop there and pause. That was Peter Pomerantsev, Senior Fellow at London School of Economics, speaking at the Information Wars Symposium. Thank you for listening. Seriously, we appreciate it so much. Come back soon for more slightly disturbing humanoid voices. But for now, it's over. Trust me.